let's all give David Baldacci a round of applause for coming to join us. It's a longer store than it looks like from back there, so it's, um, it's great. It's so good to see you again. We were trying to figure out, do you remember the last time you were here? Uh, God, no, I, I just did the um, <clears throat> Kidney Foundation luncheon today, uh, and they told me the uh, last time I had done that was the year 2000. So, and, and a lady on her phone had a picture of me from tw 2000, 23 years ago, and I still have as much hair as I had back then, but it's a slightly different color. So, um, so that was quite, so it's been, I don't think it's been 23 years, but, because I've been back here since then, but I'm not sure, but you and I have done a bunch of Zooms over the last we have. five years. Actually, <clears throat> David and I have known each other for a very long time, long and during time. COVID, we did a number of Zoom events, we did. which you can find if you go to our YouTube channel, you can, and here's a trip, if you go to YouTube instead of Facebook, you can actually put it on your smart TV, and you can watch it like Netflix, right? Right. Right, yeah. which is wonderful. So tonight we are here to talk about The Edge, but since we haven't seen David for a long time, I thought it might be sort of fun to do a little flashback across um, across a lot of the books that he's written. And David was a guest of honor at um, the big mystery convention that happens every year, and this time it was in San Diego in August. And the interviewer asked him about why, first I guess the question was, are you ever going to revisit the Camel Club? Right. And your answer was? Yeah, I, I never say never. So um, they're a great group. I have, I have three series in development and production now, um, two with Amazon, which is the Atlee Pine series and Memory Man. Um, and then Netflix has the 620 Man series. Um, and the, and the production company that set up the deal for the 620 Man, I went out there to meet with them, Rideback. They do a lot of different stuff. They did the Lego movies and all. They made a bunch. Of, they've done a lot of television and, and all. And they really want to be in business with me now. So they said, look, what ser other series do you have that hasn't been made yet that you would like to be made, see made? And I said, well, Camel Club. And they said, we're already working on it. Because that was the one they thought as well. So that uh, they threw out a, I, I can't tell you, they threw out a couple of casting choices for Oliver Stone that actually I thought were pretty damn good. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, the Camel Club is, I love those guys. And I haven't been to an event in the last 10 years where somebody didn't mention the Camel Club. I was at an event in Atlanta and I was walking up to the podium and not looking out of the crowd and I heard somebody scream out, what do you think I want more of? And I looked out and this guy was standing in the middle of the crowd with a 10 foot metal pole and he was holding this pole up and there was something duct taped to the top and I, I couldn't tell what it was. So, you know, what do you want more of it? I just, I, I blurted out medication, I, you know? <laughs> but it turned out it was a stuffed camel duct tape to the top of the pole, which is kind of clever, you know? I'm, um, there we go. I don't know. I think it was a failure of imagination. He could have brought a real camel. He could have brought a real camel, you yeah, know? Then, I'm, then I, I would have written the book right then. <laughs> so my experience in reading you over, let's see, when did Absolute Power, which is David's first thriller, when did 1996. it publish? 1996. 1996. Yep. So I started the store in 1989. I know, you're just your 34th year. Right. So I have been able to read David in real time, as the books have published. And um, 
what I've observed is that you you have a story arc for some characters and then something else gets your attention and the characters that you have been working on don't fit that story and so you come up with a whole new thing. Yeah. You know, it's I've been doing this a long time, written over, you know, fifty novels and one thing is imperative for me is to keep myself energized and fresh, but also, and, and the way to do that is to get myself out of my, any comfort zone I might be in. And the way to do that is to having to create brand new characters, brand new worlds, brand new plots. And so I can't just kind of become complacent about, okay, I've written 25 books about this character. I'll just kind of do the same sort of thing. Um, and I also get, sometimes I, I, I'm curious about a lot of different things. Sometimes I get bored too about, okay, I've carried this character as far as I can go. What else do I have to say about the character? And other things capture my attention. You know, it could be uh, Amos Decker, it could be Aloysius Archer. I love the golden age, you know, of Hollywood, so the 40s and 50s. I wanted to write a story about that. I couldn't do that with any of my other series, obviously, unless I had a time machine. <laughs> um, so that just, I sort of go where my interests direct me to go, and that keeps me sort of interested and fresh. Well, I know that David really loves the golden age of Hollywood and some historical because a while back you asked me if um, you could interview Jake Tapper um, on on our you know Zoom platform and all. This is one of the scariest moments of my life, um, and it it emphasized the wisdom of always reading the book before I embark upon an author interview, because I don't remember where you were, but we had it all ready, and then you couldn't log in. I couldn't log in. <clears throat> it would let you. I think what happened was that I logged in, then I had to log out for some reason, then it said, okay, you've already logged in and logged out, so you're gone forever, <laughs> and would not let me log back in, and so then poor Barbara's sitting there with Jake Tapper, and, and she had to do the interview. You know? Never met him. You yeah. know, I mean, I thought David was doing all the heavy lifting, but fortunately, fortunately, I had not only read the book, but the other part, and I think this is an interesting thing about um, 20th century historical fiction. Jake was re was writing. I think that book was in the 1960s. That yes, was, it was. When, yeah. right. Um, I went to high school with Anne Margaret. She and I used to sing together, and um, Jake, Jake was born in the 1970s, so he, he didn't know the 1960s, but I was actually out of college, the, <laughs> so I knew more about the 1960s than Jake, which allowed me to have a much better discussion with him, but then he moved up. He's advancing in time, because I the think 70s. the last book is in the 70s. In the 70s, yeah, so it's when he was alive. <laughs> right. I love it. So you writing, um, Aloysius Archer is your Golden Age Hollywood guy, right? Yeah, he is. I, I had an idea for this character, and I wanted to start him coming out of prison, um, and it was just a fancy of mine, and I got interested in it, and I, the publisher didn't even know I was writing the book, which often happens. Like The 620 Man, they didn't know I was writing that book. I just I was down in Florida riding my bike, and I'd read the Panama and Pandora papers about $30 trillion of dark money floating around the world, and it was a great... Um, collection, the, the International Consortium of Journalists who did it, they're from uh, reputable papers all over the world. They do this for free, and they all band together to ferret out these types of stories on a global basis. And I'd read them, and so I wrote the 620 Man to sort of answer, what do you do with $30 trillion, right? And I thought, well, why bother buying the 10th yacht or the 11th private jet? If I had that much money, what I would do is use it to make sure that the playing field around the world is tilted even more in my favor. And when the book came out, I had mentioned this consortium 
you know, the Pandora Papers and the Panama Papers. And the head of it was reading the novel in bed somewhere, and he came across them. And he was like, I fell out of bed on my ass. I mean, I was like, you know, like, my God, we're in the book. Um, and he emailed me and he interviewed me. And um, he said, you brought much, so much attention to us because so many people read that book. And I had dinner with him and his colleague in D.C. about a month and a half ago. And they were just, you know, my God, thank you so much. And he said, by the way, you were spot on <laughs> with what they were doing with that money. They were spending it in all different places on people, properties, and things like that to really just refashion and reshape the world that will most benefit them. So, um, but my publisher had, so I sent the 620 man up. I wrote it in about, I wrote the first draft in six weeks because I was so into the, the story and I sent it up to them and they were like, oh my God, what is this? And I said, well, it's a, it's a, it's a third book <laughs> that we can publish that year. And so, um, it uh, was number one for three weeks. It was on the list for almost 20 weeks, and um, people really loved it. So I'm really happy to bring Travis Devine back in the edge, and um, I drop him in rural Maine on the coast, and um, a CIA agent has been found murdered up there, so his job is to go up there and figure out is something to do with her career as a CIA agent or something to do with a small town. Um, and the opening scene, um, is a train ride between Geneva and Milan. And uh, let me just tell you, if, you, if you're not into this book by the end of that chapter, then there's no hope for you. Because <laughs> it's, a, it's a flat out, it's like, holy cow, my God, what, okay, I'm here. So, yeah. It's a wonderful story. There's actually somebody named Baldacci in the story. Yes. Right? Yes, my cousin John uh, was governor of Maine. Um, and he was also a congressman from Maine. So I, I, it was a, it was a shout out to my cousin, um, that one of the characters in the book, um, who was politically involved had worked with him and the Senator Angus King who was also a governor, uh, way back. And, uh, so I, I thought, Hey, I, I'm sitting in Maine. I got to give a shout out to John. So I did. Well, you also mentioned in the afterward, don't read the afterward till the book, till you've read the book, but I always read the afterward because it gives me more things to talk about. And one of the things that you said in the afterward was that you really wrote this in part for your wife, Michelle, because she loves Maine so much. Yes. So we, she, she when we were, our kids were little, we had some friends who owned um, a beach house in a Gunquit, Maine. Uh, which is southern Maine, below Portland. And we would go there pretty much every summer. And my wife loved it. She'd always wanted us to buy a house up there. I was like, well, it's a really long way away. It's salt water. Um, and, you know, how often would we use it? So we bought a, instead we bought a lake house in southern Virginia that we've had for over 20 years. So we went back to Maine um, this summer, but also the previous summer. So we went up there, and I sort of fell in love with Maine again. And it's, it's the reason I set the book in Maine. Uh, the edge, because I was like, okay, I'm into the atmosphere. Uh, I, I love sort of the topography, small town on the coast, very isolated. Um, and it really fit uh, this novel, because you're, you're into it from the, the get-go. As soon as he lands in Maine, the atmosphere and the topography in the town really becomes a character in the novel all the way through. And so, uh, yeah, I, and any time that I can say thank you to my wife is a good thing, right? So I, um, we've been married 33 years, and... Um, as soon as I learned after like um, four months that I was actually the weaker sex, we were, um, everything was fine. You know, it just worked out so well. And, uh, I, you know, I, I loved it. 
I really like Michelle. She's an Outlander fan. So yeah, she is. I mean, that makes her a princess in my world. She read the she started reading the Outlander book when they first came out long before the TV series. And uh we met Diana a number of years ago at one of the National Book Festivals, and I, I have I have to admit I, I haven't read the books, but I I love the series, the TV series, and my wife is so funny. She goes, "Okay, there's this season, there's a lot going on. This is like the second season," and she goes, oh, "We're going the episode we're going to watch today. I'll tell you when you need to close your eyes." And I was like, what? I'm a man. She goes, yeah, that's why I'm going to tell you when you need to close your eyes. So here comes the scene. It's with, uh, you know, the bad, the villain guy and Jamie in a prison. And she says, close, close your eyes. And I was like, okay. And like, I heard sounds. <laughs> and then she was like, open them. I was like, okay. And she goes, okay, are you good? And I said, yes, I'm, I'm great. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see anything. She goes, good. She goes, well, I I didn't know um, about your family background to it, or even that Michelle loved Maine. But I could tell when I was reading the book that you had to know Maine for one thing, or you yes. couldn't write so beautifully about it. And I have actually marked a page in a paragraph, which probably makes more sense for you to read than me. Um, but could you start and just read along the way that bottom paragraph there, because okay. it's really beautiful about <clears throat> the landscape is such an important character in this book. All right. Along the way, he had passed signs that said he was on the Bold Coast Scenic Byway, and it fit the bill. As his journey brought him closer to the Gulf of Maine shoreline, Divine, at intervals, saw narrow strips of sandy and pebble beaches, as well as towering granite bluffs, standing sentry along craggy coves filled with rock-strewn headlands and stout, robust greenery, holding purchase in the saltwater-slicked rock wherever he could. There were also vast forests that reached to the horizons and old orchards of fruitless trees, leading right up to rocky cliffs standing firmly next to the water like silent sentries. So Maine actually has a bigger coastline than California. It oh, does. Sorry. Applause. Sorry, yes, I interrupted. I My fault. <laughs> right. um, because of all the little rocky indentations and everything, the coastline of Maine is tremendously long. And the other thing I think often people forget is that it's a border state. It is a border state. Yes. In fact, my um, my wife's um, family is from Canada, the French Canadians. And when our kids were little, uh, we uh, drove up there. We went to Boston first, and then we, we headed up there. Her family had a camp on a lake um, in Fort Kent in Madawaska, Maine, which is, let me just tell you, so you're driving a 95 for a long time, and there's nobody else on the highway, and you think there's been a nuclear war because there's nobody else on the highway, a 95. And then you see a sign that says, in two miles, Interstate 95 ends. So you have to get off of Interstate 95, and then you get on Route 1, and you're on Route 1 for a long time. And then you see a sign that says, in a one mile, Route 1 ends. <laughs> so you get off of Route 1, and you keep driving for a while, and I'm like, I'm like, are we still in America? Because haven't we run out of country yet here? And then you get to Madawaska, and then really you can, and if you're in Madawaska, you take a stone and throw it, and you hit a Canadian, because um, that's really where it is. And um, so I've been to both ends of Route 1. I've been to Key West, where I think the zero-mile marker is, and then up in Maine, where the end of it is. Um, but it's, um, it's hauntingly beautiful, and... Most people know about the coast coast of Maine, but the interior of Maine is enormous. It's a huge state, and it's 90% um, forested. It's the most forested state in the country, um, and it's just there's a lot of stuff there. And um, I love writing about it, and uh, I've um, 
you know, been off the coast on boats and stuff like that. It's just, it's really beauty. And I give you a little bit, not that you really need to follow the story. There's a little bit, if you want to know about lobster fishing, you'll learn about it in this book. So... The lobster fishing, which is being pushed out because the water is getting warmer and the yes. lobsters aren't happy with the with the water. Actually, I think the interior rivers of Maine are beautiful. Um, and Maine has been a big paper-making state because they have water and they have trees, big right? Big paper so mills. Lots going on there. Um, any of you read Paul Doyron? And read, if you haven't read Paul, he has a whole series about a main... Have you read Paul's no. books? Game Warden, they're fabulous. And one of them, in fact, is set on the border um, and goes back and forth with the you know Cajun community. Yes. I'll have to, I'll have to give you a copy. But anyway, um, if there's a small town, which is what the setting for this is, in Maine, perhaps the small town is even more secluded than it might be in some other places. And this story seems to me really depends upon a small town. Yeah, it, it does. And the name of the town is Putnam. And don't look it up. There is no Putnam, Maine. <laughs> and I've been writing long enough now that I don't like writing about real places because then somebody will email me and say, yeah, you know, that store's on the wrong corner. Um, you know, you idiot. Couldn't you have, like, looked at the map or something? So it's, it's Putnam, Maine. And the reason I named Putnam, so when we first... Uh, we're going up there. We would rent houses on the beach. And the first two years, we rented from Mr. and Mrs. Putnam. And our kids were little, and we would, as we were getting close to the house, we would all start singing, Putnam's, meet the Putnam's, you know, like the, <laughs> from, from the Flintstones. Um, and so that's why it's Putnam, Maine. You know, I, you, you have a little bit of insider knowledge now about where that name of this town came from. So small town dynamics, unless, you know, it's, and I don't mean this disparagingly, but let's say unless the town is really like all trailer parks or something, um, there's usually a class system in a small town. You know, the British, it's always said that the British are obsessed with class and the Americans are obsessed with race and that, you know, all comes into to novels. But in a small town like Putnam, there usually is some kind of one or two or more really wealthy families with really long history. And everybody thinks that they know everything about all the people who've lived in that small town forever, right? And you can get typed. I mean, if you were like the, you know, the kid that carried the winning touchdown in the whatever game, you're forever going to be, you know, the local football hero or something. But, you know, we don't always, we can't always tell what's behind the faces of everybody we know, right? No, it's like it's. I don't want to give anything away in this book, no, so I'm hedging it, slightly. I know it's you know you can't really judge a book by its cover, no matter how much you think you might be able to, and and also people change over time, people evolve, you know. And I'm not saying that everybody gets evil as they get older, and that's not the case at all. But it's hard to read people sometimes, and I also like. Like my other book, Simply Lies, it came out in the spring. It was a lot about you know being online and the anonymity where. Online, you can be anybody and anything you want to be with no accountability. And, you know, most people are good people and all that, but I have, to, it's, when you, it's tempting, you know, when you get on and there's no accountability, I can be anything I want to be. You know, some people, you know, they really push the envelope there. And, and that's where you have bullying and abuse and all that online. And I, I, part of me really thinks that like a thousand years from now, you're going to have, a team of digital archaeologists who are going to rummage through all this stuff if humankind is still here. And there's and they're going to 
have a report they write, they write up, and they're going to go before the tribunal and all these people up there, they're going to be like, and so what is your report? Why was humankind almost destroyed a thousand years ago, sir? And the guy's going to come and say, well, from what we could find out, there was this thing called Twitter. You mean X formerly known as Twitter? X formerly known as Twitter. And somehow it brought it all down. <laughs> we don't know exactly how. Have you noticed that the media never actually says, it, it, they, every, they, I've not seen it any other way, X formerly known as Twitter. It's like, it's like the whole name now is X formerly known as Twitter. Yeah, no. And then you're like, so what's the point? <laughs> exactly. Well, anyway, I brought I brought up my comments there about um, small towns and um, and secrets because you know sometimes we think a thriller has to have like geopolitical stakes has to be you know the end of the nation as we know it or it has to be an invasion. Well, that's even a horrible topic to discuss at the moment. But right. anyway, my point is that the stakes can be really high just as high in a small town, and the secrets can be just as devastating to the people involved. So, David, you think of David as a thriller writer, and the fact that he's in this Putnam, Maine, little town and all, does not mean that it's not a thriller. Right. No, you're absolutely right about that. And big stakes can come from little things, you know? So, in this one, I, it's really a sort of a closeted community, and there are, a, you know, a finite number of people, um, you know, nations are not going to be, you know, fall to their knees because of the outcome, but people's lives are, and people you get to know really intimately well in this novel. So the stakes are very high just because people, hopefully you've grown to care about in the, in the book, are at risk. Um, and the life of one person, you know, for me is, is high stakes. Um, if I've allowed you to come to know the person and care about whether they live or die. So stakes are a funny thing. They don't have to, you know, there doesn't have to be a nuclear bomb involved. There's going to, sometimes, you know, you, a bomb and 100,000 people who you've never met in your life is wiped out. That's a horrible thing. Um, but losing someone you know and care about, just one person, probably has a bigger impact on you just because of that personal connection. We are human beings, after all. Uh, so that's what you get in, in this novel. You know, the, the stakes are high. And there's, you know, people are at risk in this. And nobody's really safe, not even, you know, the Travis Divine in this one. And um, I, that's what I liked about it. I like writing a very intimate story um, where I spend time on, you know, letting the characters really grow upon you. And um, it was nice to bring him back in that way. It's different from the 620 minute. The pace is relentless. It's really, it goes from, from page one. It's just boom. Um, but I give you doses of that small town life and the lives that are in that town. Um, which is why I sort of wanted to set it there instead of a big city like the 620 Man was in New York City with, you know, 8 million people. But this place is very different. So sometimes I think the books that have the biggest effect on us are ones where we know the victim and we mourn the victim. I mean, I've, I've often thought that the best books, you mourn the victim and occasionally you can empathize with a killer. Although if you have somebody like the main shooter, I don't know that empathy is going to come into play here. But um, in this book, the person is already dead when the 620 man gets there. And right. so we only get to know her after the fact from what people have to say about her, what we learn about the job and all. And that's a harder trick, David, to make you really care about, you know, somebody who 
we never we never actually get to know except through other people. Yeah, and it's also interesting that depending on who he talks to, he gets different opinions about her as well. We all have different opinions about the same person. Sure. You know, some people more positive, some some are positive and negative just for different reasons. Um, so Travis Devine's job is sort of trying to piece all these fundamentally different viewpoints together to try to arrive at who this person actually was. Because knowing the victim sometimes leads you to who the killer might be. Because uh, there are clues based on that. Most people, unfortunately, this murder is, you know, 80% of the time done by someone you know. Um, I know that's not a great thing to think about, but that's just sort of a proven fact. Random killings are very rare. That's also, I think, kind of a good thing because random killings are sort of scary. Like, oh, my God, if somebody's going to kill me, I'd like them to know me, right? <laughs> um, so right. Um, that's well, what you get. But we know from the outset that she worked for the government and she, you know, had a um, spy career or whatever. So, you know, the the real question is did somebody – you know, follow her there, was it her, and the, and, you know, the obvious answer really is that it was her professional life that got her killed. Right. Um, you know, so I think, I think that's an interesting, you know, additional. And there's one, you know, one of the couple of the things that I try to do in this novel is you see a softer side of divine where there are frail human characters in this novel that he has to deal with. And, He's not going to come in and just muscle everybody and use his skills as a former army ranger to control the narrative in this. It's just real people where he's not always best equipped to deal with their problems and issues. Right. And he has to sort of muddle through at the same time. And there's also, you know, and usually in these books, somebody, you know, is well-trained. He can k kill anybody with his thumb. Um, so, you know, I wrote a scene in there where he could have done damage to other people easily. Um, but he chose not to. He chose another way around because sometimes the best the best uh, exit from a fight is to walk away from it. Um, and his, you know, and he's thinking something. Yeah, I can. The reason I don't want to hurt these people is because I don't have to to achieve the goal that I need to get achieve. Um, you almost never see that in these types of books. They just go and they kick everybody's ass and they walk away. Um, but I just wanted to show the divine. There's a more of a nuance to him about that and, and I guess maybe <clears throat> kindness and empathy where uh, you know the, the people who the most secure people in the world they don't worry about having to prove themselves every minute of the day and they don't mind you know sort of just walking away and let the people say oh look at him he's walking away that means you're in control of yourself not someone else is controlling you you know so you're definitely secure in your own uh, body and that's who I tried to portray in this book um, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the way the story turned out. It gives you another, it's an evolution of Travis Devine's character in this novel. There's a lot of action. He, uh, you know, he gets through a lot of different scenarios and a lot of harrowing escapes. Um, but there's also another side to him. There's a, there's a human side that you'll see in this novel and his interactions with some other characters in, in the book, particularly one, particularly one. So this is the second book for him after the 620 men. And um, I'm hoping that the way you resolve it means there is going to be another book. And if yes. there isn't, I'm going to hit you over the head with a microphone. Yes. Because um, there, it's really nifty. You do sort of propel us forward to another time with Travis, the way this book ends up. Yeah, I've got sort of built in... Um, third novel out of this there's something unresolved uh, that begins in the very 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 beginning of the novel 
that is going to be hanging over his head. Um, and he doesn't know when it's going to pop out right. again, which is kind of neat. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit of a spoiler um, because, you know, in a thriller, it's possible that the hero doesn't make it through the end. Right. If it's, you know, especially in standalone books, absolutely everybody's at risk. Do you like doing that? You know, because you've written some where, you know, there's no safety net for anybody. I, I know. And I've, I've done that from the very first novel where I didn't want anybody to assume that everybody was safe just because they've been in the book for like 200 pages. I can still kill them. <laughs> you know, it's like um, I remember when I started even though I'm a thriller writer, I think I'm the only thriller writer in the world who's had not one but two Hallmark movies made of my novels, The Christmas Train and One Summer. In fact, after One Summer came out, Hallmark came back and said, do you have any more, you know, ideas? Because these have been really great for us. And I said, yeah, you know, so how many people can I kill? Because my, over the pandemic in particular, my wife was glued to Hallmark movies and mysteries. And I didn't know they had that separate channel like years ago. So I walked by, I was at our house and walked by and I was like, and I saw this dead body on the ground, like blood. And I was like, what are you watching? She goes, Hallmark. I'm like, Hallmark, there's a corpse. She goes, yeah, they kill people on this channel. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So, um, so if I do another Hallmark, you know, somebody's gonna die. <laughs> But they die. They die neatly. They die very neatly. They do, right. Yeah. I mean, Joanne they... Fluke has a Hallmark series. Linda Castillo's first book, I think, Sworn to Silence, was a Hallmark movie, yeah. if I remember right, with Kate Burkholder, the Amish policewoman. But generally, it generally, that's not there for you know serial killers and lots of gore. No, not at all. I mean, he'll, they're going to they're going to look beautiful dead. <laughs> Boy, it's hard to top that line, right? Um, so David mentioned that, you know, every once in a while there's a surprise book. Now, I've already talked to you about the reason there are these hard sell dates is so that everybody can schedule things. David is the disruptor because every once in a while I get a panicked email from his publisher saying, oh, my God, there's another book. <laughs> How are we going to work it in? And, you know, so... You don't, I mean, you do have sort of a normal schedule, one book in the fall, like usually November, yeah. and for a long time it's been one book in April, so it's been like, you and John Sanford kind of tick-tock back and forth. I know, we have that, Yeah. Yes. Sometimes I have to work hard to keep the two of you from the same pub week. I know. Because I often am a traffic director, and I will write to Putnam and say, no, 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 it's <laughs> David's pub day, you don't have to move, John. But then you throw in a book. Yeah, I know, it's... It's and again, there's no plan for it. I I write just for the sheer love of storytelling. So it's not like I have a schedule or a plan about what I'm going to write. And if something really grabs my interest, I will set aside what I'm working on and just go for it. And I've done that several times in my career where I've had a third book that nobody knew was going to be a book, and I didn't know until I sort of got gripped by it. I've been so in April, the book's already done. I do my fourth first sort of historical courtroom drama. It comes out in April. It's called A Calamity of Souls, and it's set in 1968 in Virginia. And I've been working on this novel for about 15 years, off and on. Um, and if I remember for any book, it may be for this one, just because I really poured my heart and soul into this novel. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, the old capital of the Confederacy. I grew up during Jim Crow. Um, and a lot of the book is autobiographical. And... Um, but it's a it's it's different in that it's the world as I saw it. Um, it's not, you know, covered up. It's not made pretty. It's not a ni nice bow. This is the world as I as I grew up um, at that time period. And I think the fact that I grew up at the, in that place at that time is the reason I'm a writer today, because I grew up in 
a land where Lee, Jackson, Stewart, and Davis were revered, I had a very ethnic last name that no one could pronounce. Um, and so I was very much the outsider looking in. I was sort of Harriet the Spy, you know, in the old Confederacy. <laughs> um, and that really, I don't know, I think that was a huge impact on my ending up eventually being a writer because I was such an observer of that time period and everything that was going on in that world. It was a really complicated world, too. And I'd been given some thought to write this book for a long time, and, and finally I decided to just go for it. Um, and, you know, publishers and all that said, this is the best, by far the best thing you've ever written in, in your life. And because it's just very personal. It, look, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated quorum. It is an incredible mystery. No one will figure out the end. I mean, no one. Because I've, I've had, you know, 20 people in publishing who read thousands of books, and they were all blown away. They're like, oh, my God, never, never saw it coming. But the mystery and the courtroom thing, it, it's cool, and it allowed me to get back. And I was a trial lawyer for a long time, so I, being in the courtroom again was really neat and all the, the tactics and strategies that go into that. But the mystery is is not the primary component of this novel. It's the story of the people involved in the time period where it's set. 1968, for people of a certain age, it was one of the most tumultuous years in this country's history. For sure. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. The Vietnam War was heating up like crazy. We had the DC, DNC convention in Chicago. The world was falling This country was falling apart. Um, and I've, I've drawn... I don't explicitly say it. I just put it out there, and people can make their own conclusions. But there are some parallels <laughs> that you can draw between 1968 and what's going on today. Um, so that, again, that was a novel my publisher wasn't expecting. They had no idea I was writing it. And when I turned it in, they were like, oh, my God, what is this? And I said, well, it's just something I've been working on. So um, so here it is. There and, and there it is. But that's just kind of how... That's how I roll writing. I just, you know, things that grab me, I just, I go for it. So Virginia's an interesting state in, in a legal terms. David is a Virginia attorney. I read the law in Virginia, and I can still remember how fascinated I was when trolling through whatever. Um, the Supreme Court case that a lot, Virginia had um, an anti-miscegenation statute, meaning that people of different races could not marry each other, primarily black and white. Yes. And um, a brave couple took their marriage or their wanting to be, I can't remember, I think they were married, all the way to the Supreme Court. And I've always loved this. I mean, there's hardly ever any humor in a Supreme Court docket or reading the Supreme Court decisions. But the name of the case, which I truly love, that blew away that, that law in Virginia and made it legal for people of other races to marry, is called Loving versus Virginia. Virginia. And I mean, the, man, the, man, I just, the man's uh, name was Loving. Yep, but I mean, I've always thought that's and the only funny Supreme Court. I know. I know. And that, that case is, I mentioned that case in The Calamity of Souls. I bet so you do. in 1967, um, Virginia relied on the Tenth Amendment, mm -hmm. which basically is anything the Constitution doesn't say goes to the federal courts or the federal power system, government goes back to the states, and the states can decide. And the NAACP lawyers argued under the 14th Equal Protection Clause that shouldn't you be allowed to marry whomever you love? Um, and so the 14th Amendment in that case trumped the 10th Amendment. And um, it was, and again, I, it was like one of the most wonderful ironies that his, his name was Loving. So the Lovings moved to Virginia and, and lived out their lives, you know, happily married. And Virginia set 
the standard for that. And then, and then once that case was decided, all other 49 states, if whoever you loved, you could actually marry. You know, if you were a different race, it didn't matter anymore. But you know, when you think about it, 1967, it, it's not 100 years ago, no. you know? And you, you think in 1967, you know, a black cannot wear, marry a white person. Um, so I, I call that sort of recent history. Well, 1955, just to be a little more legal, Brown versus Board of Education was the Supreme Court case that came up and um, said that schools had to be desegregated. Now, in my own family, um, my husband's great-grandfather, Julius Rosenwald, who founded Sears and Roebuck, set up um, a program called the Rosenwald Schools. If you belong to the National Trust or anything, um, you can see that they are coming back. But they were specifically schools only for black students in, in the South, mostly in small towns. And they were community centers. They were incredibly valuable. And I think Brown versus Education was very poorly drafted because, unfortunately, the way they wrote it, not only did white schools have to desegregate, but the Rosenwald schools could no longer exist because they were restricted to black students and no white students could go. And, you know, there's a law of unintended consequences that really comes along. And, you know, we can get so focused on one thing that we, we don't really look ahead to the consequences. And we're seeing some of that right now with the extreme legislation and book bannings and library things. And I don't want to get into politics, but, you know, sometimes when you take extreme, often when somebody takes an extreme position, there are unintended consequences and sometimes can lead to reforms that can surprise the people who thought they were going in the other direction. Well, yeah, I mean, in, in Florida, so Mike Connolly and I, we've um, donated money to PEN America, which fights book banning and also gets journalists who've been in prison around the world freed to set up an office in Florida. The, the way the Florida law is written now, um, if a librarian or a teacher has a book on a shelf that hasn't been pre-approved by the state, um, they can go to prison for five years mm-hmm. in Florida. Oh, it's true. And so it's a criminal statute. And what happens, because the statute is very vague, what happens is teachers are self-censoring because who wants to go to prison, right. right? So they're pulling books off the shelves that may not be, you know, against the law, but they're afraid. So now you go in, the, in Florida classrooms and you look at the shelves, there are no books on them. Or they have cardboard covers over the shelves so the students can't see the books that are there. And... I'm thinking, so how, how are you supposed to learn um, with, with that? It just, it makes, no, it makes no sense. It, you know, we fight wars against countries that do this sort of thing, that ban books. And, and also, as a, as a lawyer, uh, books in Florida, it's, the books are presumed guilty until proven innocent. Because if you're, you don't even have to be a parent in the school system. You write a one-page form and say, I, I want this book taken off the shelf. They immediately take it off the shelf. Even if you have 50 parents, you say, leave it on the shelf. So that one parent's right is trumps all the other parents' rights. Then it goes into this vetting thing where I don't even know what the rules are. And if the book is permanently banned, there's no appeal. Um, and then it's gone. And it's never going to come back to that. And I don't know really what the point of all of this is. If I, I get it. If you're a parent, you don't want your kids to read a certain book. That's your business. But I don't think one parent should say, my kid shouldn't be able to read the book either. And the way it's set up in Florida now, that's the case. And people can say, well, they can go to a bookstore and buy it. Well, maybe they don't have the money to buy a book. And plus, they pay taxes. So why why can't they go to the school library, you know, and get the book for free? Because shouldn't kids be able to do that? It's We have a history of book banning in this country. Like every 20 or 30 years, this comes about. But this, this seems really weird. It seems really different this time. 
Well, it'll be a boon for digital reading. (laughs) They forget that part, you know, so we'll see. Well, on that cheerful note, why don't we um, take questions (laughs) from the audience, David? I look forward to that. um, You called them. Yes. That's a great question. So when I'm when I'm I have had a lot of films optioned and made, and do I keep that in mind when I'm writing it, or is this thrillers are just sort of you know uniquely susceptible to being made into good films and television? I never really think about any of that while I'm writing the story because I'm terrified that I'm gonna instead of writing a novel, I'm gonna write a screenplay in disguise, <laughs> and it's gonna turn out to be kind of a bad novel. Um, I just try to write the stories that appeal to me and fascinate me, and I'm hoping that if they fascinate me, they'll fascinate all of you. And then people in the film world are just looking for good stories with compelling characters, and that's what I try to write with all of my stories. So they will come to me and they'll like, you know, this is great because it's exciting and it opens a world that most people don't know about and characters are people that people care about, and let's go ahead and do it. So I think it's more of that. It's just, um, it could be the genre. It's also the way that I tell my stories. I just write about things that I hope people care about. Um, and with all the stuff that I've had, all the streaming platforms and the, and the networks need a lot of content now. You know, the pandemic kind of blew everything up and the writer's strike and then the actor strike, which is still going on. Um, they need content and I have a lot of content. And, and once it starts to roll, it starts to really roll. So now, we're, you know, we're just getting offers left and right. Um, of them wanting to, you know, adapt certain of my stuff, but I, I, I try not to think about it. And one, because it's such a long shot that it's going to get made into something. So why even bother? Um, so I never sit down and think, okay, I'm going to write this character with Brad Pitt in mind (laughs) because it's just not happening, you know? Yes, ma'am. Your, um, audio book narrators, uh, the six twenty man. He was fantastic. I, I do choose them all, the narrators for the the audiobooks, and he was fantastic. That was that was one of the best casts for the 620 Man. They just nailed it all the way through. Um, so they will audition. They'll send audition uh, digital files, and I'll listen to them. They'll give me like three picks for the male, three picks for the female, and they have a third narrator couple. And I'll listen to them all, and I say, okay, this one, this one, and this one. Because I, it's really important. I mean, the downloads are really popular. Anything tied to a phone these days, my God, you know. So it's important. And I, wanna, I don't want to get just people who are reading the material. I want to get people who are performing the material to give you more of an emotional edge than I can give you just by the written word. They sort of breathe life into the, the material. So I want to take full advantage of that. Yes, ma'am, right back there. How did you ever come up with Amos Decker and yeah. his interesting medical history? Uh, I mean, th- I know. Yeah. So how did, how did I come up with Amos Decker and his, his medical history? So years ago, I read a book called Born on a Blue Tuesday, um, which is about a guy who had both synesthesia. And so he associated days of the week with color. So Tuesday for him was his vivid blue. Um, and he also had hyperthymesia, perfect recall. He had had a traumatic brain injury. There are two ways to get hyperthymesia, uh, TBI, or you're born with it. <laughs> I, would, I would favor being born with it <laughs> rather than getting a traumatic brain injury. Um, and I thought, well, you know, 
that's fat. The mind is fascinating. So the mind is damaged. It rewires around the damaged area so it can keep functioning. But by doing that, it taps into areas of the brain we don't normally take advantage of. But it can also change your personality and make you a different person in the same body. How fascinating is that? So I thought if I can construct a detective who perfect recall would be a great attribute, but at the same time give him all this baggage of he, he's lost who he was, but he still has to live in the same body, and he's sort of vaguely aware of who he used to be, and it makes him, a, a, you know, he's, he's an annoying guy, you know, and he, he makes people upset. He walks out in the middle of sentences. He has no filter. He says stuff that people are like, oh, my God, you know. Um, but he was a challenge to create because I, can I make people like him, you know, with all of those traits to him? And, but he's one of my most, I love him, you know, I, I love him. And, and Amazon is really excited. And I can't tell you the name, but I have to say that one of the actors that you would know that they said, what about this guy? And usually when they say, what about this guy? I'm like, oh, my God, no. But when they said, what about this guy? I was like, oh, my God, Yeah. You know, he could, because Amos Decker is a, a uniquely challenging casting call. <laughs> you know, he's just, you know, he's not, not a lot of people can fill those shoes. So um, that's where, that's where it came from, just because I was, and that's, you know, ideas are learning about stuff. So I read that book and it made me think. And so you never know where ideas are going to come from. So the more you read, the more you go out, the more people you see, the more places you visit, ideas come from everywhere. I get up every day and I walk out the door. That's where my ideas come from. Yes, sir. Yes. Right. Well, I, I appreciate that very much, and uh, I'll pay you the twenty dollars later. But um, <laughs> I know I'm just a working writer. What can I say? Um, it's really just I live in that world, and I immerse myself in that world. So um, it's easy for me to keep everything straight in my mind because it's almost like I birthed all of these characters. So I know everything about them, um, but I'm. I am just driven by this passion for storytelling. And I'm not the sort of writer that I, you know, I spend six, eight, nine months and I finish a book and I go, God, thank God that's over. I'm going to take some time off. I'm like, what's next? Um, and I'm at my unhappiest when I'm between stories. That's when I'm just miserable to re be around. Just ask my poor wife. You know, I'm kind of walking around going, damn it. You know, what's, 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 what am I going to write about next? Because that's my whole life has been storytelling. It's not a, it's not a job or a hobby, or even a passion. It's what I, it's what I identify as. Um, so I just do it all the time. I never turn it off. And there's never a vacation because I feel like my whole life is a vacation. Because, you know, when my, when my daughter was little, um, she had no idea what I did for a living. You know, all she'd seen me was like, you know, uh, writing stuff down. And she never wanted me to come to parents' career day <laughs> at school because she was like, she's like, first of all, dad, she's like five, first of all, dad, you can't write in the books, okay? You write your names in the books in the library, you're going to get a detention. Because that's what you thought I did. I wrote my name in books, you know, and um, that's how I supported her. And I have to say that when, um, after I sold my first book, we were living in this townhouse in South Alexandria. We, we had our first child. Um, and I'd been a lawyer before then, so I would, you know, go to work every day, right? So then 
all of a sudden I'm home, sweatpants, ball cap. And we had this cleaning crew that would come in like once a week. So my wife, you know, she had a baby to take care of. And, you know, I was trying to write full time. The same cleaning crew would come in every week. So I was there, all of a sudden I was there every day, right, when they came in. And after like a month or five or six weeks of this, the head of the cleaning crew finally came over and said, um, and he had this wad of money. He goes, um, I'm really sorry that you lost your job. But we, we, we took up a collection for you. The cleaning crew, and they gave me, the, they gave me this money, you know? Well, you know, I, I kept the money, but um, no, I didn't. I didn't. But it was surreal. I was, first, I was flabbergasted. I, I like, oh, my God, you are, the, like, the kindest people. I, I thank you so much for this. I said, actually, I'm doing better <laughs> um, than I was as a lawyer. But people... You know, it's people's reactions to that are kind of strange sometimes, but I'll never forget that. When he, he actually had the money in a ball cap, and he was like, you know, really sorry, but hope this helps. It was just so sweet, like beyond sweet. Anybody over here? I don't mean to ignore you over here. Any, any questions over here you have? Okay. Yes, ma'am. So I had been I had been writing since I was a kid. I started writing short stories when I was in elementary school, and when I was in high school, I was trying to sell short stories to Atlantic Monthly, Story Magazine, Playboy Magazine, which you know back then published Toni Morrison and George Carroll Oates and lots of great writers. And then I started writing screenplays. I, I was practicing law. And I had a screenplay that I'd written called Reverse Order in 1991. And Reverse Order was Die Hard in the White House in 1991, long before they had the movies about the White House people. And I got an agent in LA, and um, he was making the rounds, and there was a lot of good feedback, a lot of good coverage. And I had joined this big firm, and I'd flown up to Islip, New York, to go um, with a team of lawyers. I'd been a trial lawyer, but now they wanted me to do more corporate work. So I went up there with a team of lawyers. Our client was buying a bunch of banks, right? Big acquisition. And they sent us up there to, to review bank ground leases. If you ever have trouble sleeping, I would forget the Ambien. You just pull out a bank ground lease, and after the second paragraph, you'll be soundly asleep. So I did that, you know, for like two days, and my agent is calling me, and everything's looking great. Warner Brothers is loving it, blah, blah, blah. And then I get back to the, uh, the hotel, and it's like midnight because of the time difference my agent called. And so, you know, Warner's eventually passed on it because they such a herd mentality out there. All the other studios thought something must be wrong with it, so everybody passed on it. I'm really sorry, you know, didn't sell. So I remember looking out the window of that hotel and thinking, you know, I've been doing this for, I don't know, 15 years, and I have really nothing to show for it. Maybe I'm not going to get that break. And I could have just said, screw it, I'll just be a lawyer from now on. But I went back to D.C., and I was riding my bike one day, and my law office was near the White House. And sometimes I'd see the presidential motorcade leave as I was walking by, um, or, and you see the Secret Service everywhere. And I was, a, I was a history buff, so I'd read about JFK and all the affairs he had while he was president and about the secret tunnels between the White House and the Treasury Department and the old executive office building. And then I thought, well, gee, what if a president had you know, an affair and it went wrong and someone ended up dying and the Secret Service had to, to protect that life? They had to kill someone who was actually an innocent person. And I thought, that's a pretty cool moral conundrum, right? So I was, and I just got totally wrapped up, and I spent three years of my life while I was practicing law writing that novel. And then that was absolute power. And that book changed my entire life. 
I could have never written it. But I went back home and I realized that how can you walk away from something? It would be like walking away from yourself. So I just decided this sounds like a cool story. Let me see if I can do it. And I did. Um, I sent it up to, you know, like seven agents with a little query letter in the entire manuscript. And I was hoping one of them would, you know, write back and say, yeah, write something else. We'll see, you know, if it's any good. And six of the seven agents wrote back and said, we'd love to be your agent. And I went up to New York and interviewed them. And I picked the agent uh, that I still have to this day. Um, and it's been a great partnership. And I remember the seventh agent who passed on it. I met him in a, in a you know, some publishing event years later, and he came up to me and he said, first of all, congratulations on your success. Second of all, you're the biggest effing mistake I've ever made. <laughs> so, there you go. Wait, wait, you haven't finished that story. Why is it you took, because I know the answer here, so... Why is it you took the agent that you took? So the agent, Aaron Priest, and um, Aaron Priest was Irma Bombeck's agent for her whole career, gave the eulogy at Irma's funeral. Irma described Aaron as her husband without the sex. <laughs> Sounds like Irma Bombeck, doesn't it? So um, Aaron, when I met with Aaron, he said, look, quite frankly, I know you're meeting with all these other agents. Anybody can sell this book. It's really good. Anybody can sell it. But if this is the only book you have to write, I'm not sure I want to represent you because I don't represent books. I represent careers. And every writer that's ever been with him has been with him for pretty much ever. So I said, I have a lot of books that I want to write. And he said, well, if that's the case, you belong here. And um, pulled the trigger and it's been 55 books. And uh, it was a pretty darn good decision, actually. So. How about one more question? Yes, sir, right back there. More Archer books. Yes, I am, because, I mean, I'm set him up now. He's, you know, a full-fledged detective in the City of Angels. I love the time period. Um, and for whatever reason, even though I wasn't alive during that time, it feels very natural for me to write about it. I've researched that time period, you know. Let me tell you how I did the research for that, because you think about, okay, late 40s, early 50s, oh, my God, there's so much I need to know. What do I focus on? What do I do? I tried to do it very simply, and here's what I did. I said, okay, I'm going to wake Archer up in the morning, and I'm going to take him through an entire day, and I'm going to put him to bed at night, and everything in between I need to find out about, you know? How you know how you do your toilet in the morning? How you dress? What do you eat? What do you smoke? What do you drink? How do you get from point A to point B? Everything that you encounter during the course of a day, I figured if I knew, if I figured that out in the course of a day, I could replicate that and understand how that world, you know, lived back then, and that's really what I did. But I just, it was really cool for me to actually, you know, be able to write a mystery where. Um, he couldn't Google something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or make a phone call. I mean, I, that's what I, I'm, I adored Sue Grafton. You know, for me, she's like on this pedestal a mile high. Um, Kinsey Milhone is one of the greatest fictional characters ever created. And Sue, I won't even label, label Sue as a, as a mystery writer. Lou, Sue is just an incredible writer. And, but I, I was always jealous of her because, you know, Kinsey Milhone didn't have to worry about, because what I worry about now when I write my books, people like write up and say, 
he could have just called the cell phone, you know, he had a mobile phone, right? Or he could have just Googled that, or, you know, you have a nav app on your phone, okay? And Sue didn't have to worry about any of that. And I always loved it when, when Kinsey had to stop um, at a gas station to make a phone call. <laughs> you know, I was like, that is so cool. I, sometimes I wish we still lived that way. Um, so yeah, I definitely think Archer will be de coming back for sure. Patrick has a question or two from the virtual audience that yes. I'd like to yeah. ask. We have a gentleman named Professor X who has Ooh. a good question. Uh, do you ever run into a situation when you have to toss an idea for a book in the wastebasket? Uh, what suggestions do you have for overcoming such a challenge? Everybody, I think every writer's had to do that where they've, I'll tell you with this book, um, I wrote 25 pages. I had Archer with a certain, or I had Travis Dunn with a certain role in a certain geographic location. 25 pages, it wasn't working for me, so I was like, trash can. Then I changed his role, and I changed the geographic location where the book was set, and I wrote 100 pages. Still not working for me. And I took it, and I said, no, you, you know instinctually this is not working, and don't write another 300 pages, this is not working. I don't feel it, reader's not gonna feel it, trashed it. So I just sat back for like a week or so, and I thought about it. And then I looked at the two versions in my head, and I said, I like the role I had for him in the first version, and I like the geographic setting I had for him in the second version, and I put the two together. And then all of a sudden it clicked, and I think in five weeks I wrote 115,000 words. We pretty much basically the whole novel because it finally crystallized in my head and I was off and running. So sometimes it's just a matter of you've got the role wrong, the angle the character's gonna take in the novel, or you have the location wrong, because it doesn't lend enough atmosphere or what you wanna do with the novel. And some, for me, the fix was I combined the two together, um, and that worked. But I, I would just say, don't, don't beat your head against the wall. Don't think that writing more pages is gonna solve the problem. If, you're, if it's not feeling right, it's because the foundation is not right. Patrick has one more. What a great segue. How many of you know about David's uh, foundation? Can you yes. say a little bit about that? The Wish yes. You Well Foundation. The Wish You Well Foundation. My wife and I founded it now 22 years ago. And our mission is to eradicate illiteracy in the United States. Um, I know you're sitting here in a bookstore. Um, probably not a whole lot of literacy challenges out there, but uh, about half of the adult population in the U.S. are yeah. literacy challenged, um, meaning they read at the two lowest levels of literacy. Fifth, about 50 million are illiterate, and 50 million are challenged to the extent that they really can't even read directions on a map or a grocery list. Um, and they still somehow get through. But the problem is, without high reading skills, you can't have high cognitive skills. Um, and without that, you're never going to be able to reach your economic potential. And that's why literacy, poverty, and hunger go hand in hand. And that's why you have this generational cycle of poverty. If your parents are illiterate, the odds are very high that you're going to grow up with low literacy skills. Um, not every kid does, but even one is enough for me that doesn't grow up uh, with high literacy skills. So, and it's not just to read about the next bestseller on the beach. Uh, it's not just about, you know, achieving your economic opportunities and potential. It's about being a citizen in a democracy. We are only as strong as a citizen's ability to make good choices at the voting booth. Um, and if you're not well-read, if you don't have high cognitive skills, it's really difficult because, let's face it, you know, next year there's gonna be a presidential election, right? We are going to be hit with a tsunami of disinformation, a tsunami of AI-generated ads 
and video that'll look like people that we all know and know it to be normal are going to be up there saying crazy stuff. And it's going to look really real. And if your skills are not up to that challenge, a lot of people are going to go down the rabbit hole and they're going to make poor decisions at the voting booth. I mean, I'm in the middle of a lawsuit right now uh, where I'm one of 19 named plaintiffs in a class action lawsuit against AI, open AI. And that came about because when ChatGBT came out, right, my son, who knows everything about technology, he said, Dad, come here, check this out. You might find it interesting. So he opened his laptop, and he went on ChatGBT, and he said, write me a plot that sounds like a David Baldacci novel. One, two, three. Here comes a three-page plot that sounds like one of my novels. And like, okay, it sounds like a novel I've already written, which is, a, you know, but how did they do that? Well, I found out how they did it. They took 48 of my novels and fed it into the AI platform. So that was why the AI platform could write a plot that sounded like one of my books. And they've also, and they've done that with lots of other authors, like 20 million novels, they've taken without permission and without compensation to feed into the machine. So you can go on online, like Amazon or whatever, and I think Amazon now has to have a disclaimer. So when you buy a book on Amazon, it has to tell you whether it was written by a human or by an AI platform. And they've had to limit the number of books that a r author can publish on a daily basis. Because you can just go on and say, write me a David Baldacci novel. There it is, 10 seconds later. And they can go on and put their name on it and sell it for a dollar. Um, there's something, AI has a lot of potential. Um, I don't think the creative arts should be where we use AI, because then what's the point of us? Yeah. You know, humans should be the creative force in this, all of this. But I, I tell you what, um, Google and Meta and all those others are streaming 100 miles an hour without thinking about the consequences of this, of the guardrails. I, I was reading an economist the other day said that in 10 years, 80% of the jobs that people do around the world will be done by AI. And he said he thought that was a good thing. And I'm like, well, what are we gonna do with our lives? You know, I don't want a universal income. Somebody pays me so I don't have to do anything. And are, is AI gonna create 80% more jobs to make up for those jobs that, you know, no longer, no, they're not. And, I've read all the novels and seen all the movies where you make computers smarter than us. Is that going to end well? Um, I, I, I read this interview where the Microsoft AI platform had a, had a, um, was interviewed by a Washington Post reporter. Okay, Ten minutes into it, the, the AI platform was hitting on her, flirting with her, and then trying to get her to leave her husband. And then when she didn't want to do that, it got angry. And it said it wanted to destroy things. And I'm like, that's all I need to know to like, stop, just stop. You know, we don't really need this. It's almost like cryptocurrency. You know, when people talk to me about cryptocurrency, I was like, yeah, you know, it's amazing. If only we had a way to take something out of our wallet other than cash and pay for something. You know, if we just had that, it would be so amazing, wouldn't it? And, and, we do, you know, it's called a credit card. And, and so what do we need crypto for? And it turns out that crypto is really great if you're a criminal, you know, or and a politician. or a politician. Yeah. So I'm not sure they're not synonymous, right? Well, it, well, there you are. As Mark, right. as, as Mark Twain would say, I repeat myself. That's right. <laughs>
Absolute Power was a book that, you know, there was always a kind of taboo for many years in crime fiction. The police chief was never going to be the criminal, and the president was never actually going to be the criminal. I know. David, David broke new ground with I, all I, that. I did. When the, when the um, my British publisher re-released a new edition of Absolute Power. Um, Who knew and, it would be true? Yeah, yes. and a little tagline on a blurb, and it says, um, you can't even trust the president <laughs> on, the, on the bottom of it. So. All right. Gotcha. So we've come to the moment. First, let's thank David for a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.